Welcome to the show. I'm Byron. And I'm Daz. We are both infinitely fascinated by the human mind and believe the science of psychology is a necessity in this increasingly noisy world. That's right. So we interview world-renowned psychology professors to explore the scientific findings that amaze us, how their field explains our daily experiences, and to share knowledge that expands our perspective. Sounds good. Let's go. Our guest for this episode of the Psych Podcast is Professor Olivia Carter. Olivia is a leading researcher on the subjective experience of consciousness and the biological foundation that underpins it. She heads up the Human Experience Lab at the University of Melbourne, which explores the factors that determine the contents and nature of an individual's conscious experience. This includes typical and altered states of consciousness induced by psychedelics, meditation, and psychiatric or neurological conditions. You can find out more on Olivia and her lab's research by searching UniMelb Human Experience Lab. Please enjoy our conversation with Olivia. Uh, welcome to the show, Olivia. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. We're going to start with a question about zombies. Uh, it's a philosophical question. Um, David Chalmers uh, put this question out there, and Daz and I absolutely love it. And um, it touches on the easy and the hard problem of, of consciousness. So the easy problem being that sort of understanding of the physical processes of the brain, you know, the neural networks that result in cognitive functions such as memory, and the probably more interesting bit, the hard problem of consciousness. So how do we explain the, the link between these physical processes in the brain and a person's subjective experience? So the question, the philosophical question of zombies is, could zombies who are physically identical to us exist without consciousness? If the answer is yes, then our consciousness must be a separate quality to our body and brain. Uh, if the answer is no, then consciousness must be a sum of all of the processes that are going on inside of our brain. So we're starting big, but that's what we like to do here on the site podcast. So perhaps um, we could start with your um, how you define consciousness when you think about consciousness. And of course, we're going to cover all sorts of topics around what you work on, but it is often themed around consciousness. Describe consciousness um, as, as you do for the audience. And then, yeah, let's dive into this philosophical questions on zombies. Okay, yes, there's a, it's a lot in there in that, um, that question, but I like it. So it is good to start with a definition of consciousness, and I think that that's something that's plagued the field, I guess, the scientific uh, study of consciousness, is, is there's a lot of different people that are really interested in understanding consciousness, and they'll look at one very specific small aspect, and then they'll say that is consciousness. And so... I've started to think that it, it, it's not a definitional issue. We don't. It's not that everybody that's doing this work has no clue what they're talking about and that they're talking about radically different things. But I think it, one analogy I like to give is, is to think about the term consciousness more as an umbrella term and the analogy being something like running ability. So... You ask the person on the street or any person, what does it mean to be able to run? We all have a sense of what it is. It's not an unknown thing. There would be a lot of professionals around the world that are either training or they're academics and measuring this or this or that. But if you asked 100 different experts, who is the best runner in the world? You would get a range of different answers. And, it's, again, it's not because it's not what you're – it's not that it's unmeasurable. It's that some people are emphasising uh, – 
recovery. Some people are emphasizing biomechanics, some speed, some endurance, some longevity. You know, how many world world championships have you won, and this this sort of thing. And they, depending on what you pick, you'll get different sorts of answers. And I think that um, the field of consciousness science is uh, suffering from that problem at the moment. Everyone is is using their specific measure, method, brain imaging or, or looking at clinical population or using mathematical simulations, and they are working in this space that fits under this umbrella term of consciousness. But sometimes different groups are, are working on fundamentally different things, you know. Um, so... Yeah, so I, I, that's my my sense is that um, the term consciousness is huge. In my personal interest is really on the the factors that uh, dictate and influence a person's subjective experience, um, and so I so that's sort of what I'm talking about is what is it like to be a thing or a person. Um, most of my work is not at the edge of are you unconscious or conscious, um, but rather within conscious beings, what is the range of different experiences that people can have and and how does experience sometimes interact with cognitive function, you know, is memory a part of it? Can You know, what, what are, what are the, the um, aspects of the experience that are fundamental to consciousness? Now that gets to your question about the the zombies. Yeah. So it was it's interesting the way you phrased it. So initially you said if there was two physical people that were identical, um, and I I would if if it was unclear about the how identical their brains were, and you're just saying there's two people sitting in front of you and they look physically identical, could one be a zombie and the other not? And I would say. Yes, I'd have no concerns to think that in the future we might have sort of robots or avatars that that just look completely like mm-hmm. another human and act completely like a conscious being. But if you if you say that that identical uh, physical characteristics include the brain, so it's effectively an identical twin, um, then I I would. My personal view is that, that then that person is conscious as well. But it is important to clarify that there's, there's currently no scientific sort of measure or proof of that fact. You, there's somebody else, there might be a philosopher out there, often the philosophers they not, might not necessarily personally believe that your identical twin could be a zombie, but they stress that it's a possibility. You know, we can't be sure that it, they're not a zombie and that it just puts the um, – I think it puts a little bit more uh, – what's the word? Not pressure on the on the scientists but, but requires a little bit more of a um, quality of evidence really um, to say, look, it's intuitively – makes sense that your identical twin is not a zombie. But until we can – Till the science of consciousness has got to a point where we can prove that your identical twin is not a zombie, then the philosophers would say, well, you don't have a scientific theory of consciousness mm-hmm. if you can't point to any objective criteria. And if you compare the biological twin versus the avatar online version that looks identical, mm-hmm. on what basis are we saying that 
that the biological replica is is conscious apart from the fact that we know we are conscious and if they've got the same brain, then they must be two. Mm-hmm. So my personal view is that if they've got the same brain, they must be two um, and if it's functioning the same way because I do think it's consciousness is a, a fundamental property of the brain. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that it, it couldn't be replicated in other systems that also characterise or that replicate a lot of the properties of the human brain, but... Uh, where there are human brains that are active and functioning well, I feel like that that they have the necessary requirements to support conscious experience. Absolutely. Uh, I have some takeaways from, from mm-hmm. your answer. First, it seems like in the scientific field, people have different operational definitions of consciousness. They, they, they try to define it differently, so there's a wide range of opinions. Um, but we were talking about this earlier. Uh, I know I'm conscious because I have a subjective experience of feeling happy to sit with you to record this conversation. I don't know if Byron is conscious. Uh, there's no way for me to know. Um, he would pass a Turing test, but I can't be certain about that. And uh, so that's one thing I think um, what makes it difficult? Um, even if we we have extremely advanced ability to measure things, what would we be measuring in regard to a subjective, personal experience? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that, that that's one part of it. Um, uh, the other part is um, there there is a talk from Susan Greenfield mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. She gave a talk uh, in Uni Melbourne, and which is about measuring consciousness in terms of what she calls neuronal assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, let's say, between measuring the action of a single neuron and the fMRI, which is a, a global view of what the brain is doing, sort of a summary between measure mm. to gauge different level of consciousness. Um, but Philip, Professor Philip Smith, mm. um, argued, yeah, although you can do that, it still doesn't get close to answering what Byron said earlier, mm-hmm. the gap between the sum of the parts, yeah. the par- all the parts, we can be clear about all that, but we still don't know what makes the leap mm. between the, all the parts and the experience. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's my t- t- takeaway. I, I wonder if you have um, more advanced. That's ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. What's now? So I think that it's a good question. Yeah, you, you sort of had two questions in in there, but I'll, I'll start with the second one first, and then move move backwards. Um, and I, I think you're completely correct. I was at that talk, um, and it was interesting. I think there's a lot of I, I don't particularly uh, share her specific views um, on the models of consciousness, but she has this theory of ripples of consciousness, which I thought were not particularly helpful, but um, it's a little bit vague, ripples in a pond. I'm not sure exactly what that means in a brain. Um, But it is interesting that whilst different groups are um, emphasising different things and 
the results are not, you know, it's, it, things are not crystallising in a, it's this particular neuron or this particular brain frequency or this particular region. So it's not 100% clear what is required. There is a bit of common ground that's emerging and something like large complex systems is really clear, you know. So the brain is an extremely complex organ and when I say complex I mean not just oh it's kind of complicated and difficult to understand but rather there are a lot of parts that are interacting functionally together they're interconnected Mm -hmm. in interesting ways and there are mathematical measures um, that are able to quantify I guess how many different parts in a system are working sort of in coordinated and complicated ways the one one general measure they use is is something is actually a complexity measure which you can think of as the opposite of redundancy so you can have a system with 100 million parts that are all doing the same thing well that's not a very complicated system it's not a complex system um so all that's to say without getting to the nitty-gritty of it is to say that we are starting to get a sense from all these different, we kind of need to use triangulate different methods. So you've got the MRI and EEG looking at different types of brain signals. And it certainly if you start looking at things like anesthesia or brain damage and loss of consciousness or sleep, these types of things, you do see um, reduction in the complexity of brain activity. So the brain I mean, in brain trauma, you might the brain might shut off, but in deep sleep and in anesthesia, it doesn't doesn't stop firing. Um, so it seems like, depending on how you get to that position in terms of reducing the complexity of the the neural firing, the activity within the brain, you seem to be getting to lower states of consciousness. Now, it it is it gets complicated in terms of well, is that because it's doing a memory task that has nothing to do with consciousness or not. But but the simple brains the, or the simple systems or a human brain that's behaving in a in a highly coordinated fashion is typically unconscious. Um, so I think that that's to say that that broad level of the sorts of things that Susan Greenfield's talking about is of just large-scale connectivity. There's something going on with that and, and there's a part of the brain in the that sits in the middle of the brain that's the thalamus and its role is a coordinating hub and if you knock out that part of the brain you're unconscious so so there are other bits you can knock out like the cerebellum that's about the same size and people barely not say they wouldn't notice it but they their motor control might be a bit more jittery but they're otherwise you know they would behave still the same person still the same person yeah so it's it's clear that it's not just about neurons. It is something to do with connectivity. If you disrupt the connectivity, you're unconscious. But beyond that, like what exactly, what type of connectivity and these sorts of things is less known. But can I just quickly go back to your first question and you're asking about the um, how do you know if the other person's conscious and the zombie and all the rest of it. And one, one sort of thought experiment that I like to present, almost at the opposite extreme of that. So if you said, for example, okay, there's, there's two, two people look the same and they're behaving like a complex human, you know, and how would you know? Okay, it's really difficult. How would you know? But normally if you try to, if you ask scientists up until the last, really the last few years where, where these scientists are starting to get asked more and more questions, but the, the simple thing was how do you know someone's 
consciously perceived the red tomato when I've shown them on a screen. Well, you ask the person, did you see the red tomato? You know, and you get a response. So there was this feeling that, well, the way to test consciousness is to get people, look at behavior, I guess is the answer, and to and to trust people. Now, if I look at a human and they say they saw a tomato, <laughs> then I'll probably believe, and I presented them a tomato, I probably believe they, they saw it. But what's the, the problem is now you're getting more and more complicated artificial systems that can behave these complicated functions. And one nice example I like to think about is the, is the, um, the automatic vacuum cleaner, you know, that, that just, just goes around your house, a little circle thing. Because <laughs> yeah. it satisfies really a lot of the, the sort of requirements that we would have typically had of a functioning sort of human in that it has clear sense sensory capacity. I don't think it's experiencing anything, but it can look around the room. It can navigate. It has a sense of space. It has goals. It knows where it doesn't, it, who set its goals, but who's, who knows who set the three-year-old's objectives either, you know, so it, it's functioning. It has some capacity to detect when it's the, depleted of energy so it goes back to its home base and so it can report on its internal status it says i need to be refueled or or not refueled but like emptied out and all this sort of things so in terms of insights into internal status goal-directed behavior capacity to sense and respond it kind of ticks all the boxes so i look at a robot vacuum cleaner and i don't think it's conscious i had a conversation once with someone studying insect complex insect um, uh, vision and experience and they were interested in consciousness. And I actually had that conversation around bees because he's interested in in, um, bee consciousness and his feeling was the bees are conscious and so is the robot vacuum cleaner, which it just shows that even at that, in the academic sense, it's hard on what basis, what basis are we saying that the robot vacuum cleaner is not conscious? And then it's, it's tricky. It's tricky to... There's this huge gap, so it goes in both directions, and and I think that that as we get more and more complicated robots mm. and better and better sort of avatar type systems that that are just replicating exactly a human's function, um, that grey area in the middle of who, well, how, what's the thing missing, or what's it requiring to have consciousness, or how would we know if we accidentally gave it? Yeah, you know, and so. It's yeah, fascinating to think about. And it, we've talked a little bit about this, Daz and I, but um, where's emotion and feelings mm. coming to all this? So if we keep with the analogy yeah. of the little robot duster that's mm. moving around, well, let's say an argument is, well, that robot doesn't get happy when it does uh, its tasks really well or when I praise it for doing such a good job in the living room. So therefore, it doesn't have the feeling, you know, it doesn't feel, it doesn't have the emotions. And again, we're, we're throwing some big questions at you mm-hmm. here, but it's, it's a big topic. Could you go into a little bit more about where the in your mind and, and in this world the picture that you've painted, where the ability to feel or where emotion come into this um, this discussion around consciousness for the audience? So I think that it's extremely important, and that is one thing that that typically falls out. Like in terms of if you said let's let's say the river like cleaner, we assume it's not conscious okay so it's clearly got vision so all of these things it's like what if you had this thing would you be able to uh would you feel confident whether or not this system may or may not be having this experience and things like vision memory capacity um 
all this sort of ability, attention, so select one thing over the other, all of those things can be done in artificial systems. But as soon as you start talking about emotions and feelings, then there, those sorts of words really are, they capture that sort of subjective quality. And but So I think that that's narrowing things down a lot, and I think that's a helpful way to narrow things down. Now, it, it starts getting a little bit tricky because a lot of the emotions like wanting or desire, they drive behaviour. Now, you can create an artificial system and tell it to want something. So at what point, you know, if you think that your brain is just computing stuff and the neurons are just passing different types of information around using this different type of material than we have in a, in a robot system, emotions are doing that thing. You know, they are creating drivers for behaviour and then rewards for that behaviour. We already do that in artificial systems, so it's a much simpler thing in robots. But, but is there a point at which the algorithms just get complicated enough that actually they get much closer to the way the human brain is doing it? Um, but one other thing just on the emotions, because I think it is super interesting, is that one consequence of thinking that emotion is central and actually potentially vision and behaviour and language is less central, um, it tells you that that some you might have some very simple systems like bees and mice and tiny babies that may have a much less complicated memory system and and sort of motor control system, but they may have very intense emotional experiences. So if people talk about more or less conscious and they often can consider that as analogous to more or less intelligent, it might actually be the opposite, that intelligence is something that is just the computer programming doing complicated things and that the consciousness part is more that emotion and affect part. Where do you sit in, in that? I actually, more the more I think about it, the more I think it's more the emotional affect part. And the more I think about it, it's like well, if, you, if you're doing a maths exam or you're doing your taxes or you're doing whatever it is, you try to shut out the sensory thing, you know. You just you don't want to be having emotional experience. It's, it's just a dry, you just know, a pure functional it's just a pure functional thing. Yeah. And, and it's all those things that intuitively actually feel like, so maybe we're actually less conscious in some of those times where we're doing really sort of complicated types of tasks and maybe the the pure consciousness is more an affective state. That that is I, I'm very glad to hear yeah. what, what you just said because I, I have a speculation of my mm-hmm. own about consciousness. Mm-hmm. I think it arose because we first we have a, a robust memory system so we can record things. Mm-hmm. And we we perceive things very well. So we perceive what objectively is out there. Mm-hmm. And our emotional affective system fill in some colors for the perception. We, we assign emotional valence, therefore opinions, attitude to what we perceive. And the perceptions with emotional valence gets recorded into the memories and later on we still have access to that and that the feedback and feed forward keep making us what we individually are mm-hmm. what what one individual household is different from another because 
the difference in emotional opinions, emotional mm-hmm. attitude, and it, it gets compounded more and more in your memory. I form a view on one thing, therefore I begin to subjectively, subjectively experience similar events in my own life. Mm. Based on previous emotional attitudes,、um, but there's one thing I can't. I I I don't see how we can find the answer for, which is agency.、Mm-hmm. An agency in in two things. First, and this relate to your article about、uh, DNA's、uh, mm-hmm. opinion piece.、Um, the the first is say I sit here. Nothing prompt me. I meditate. I sit here meditate. Nothing prompt me. I can spontaneously initiate a search of my memory. I can spontaneously try to find something or try to imagine something. I don't know where that agency is from, and so that's agency with regard to semantics.、Mm. Emotions are driven by chemicals, which I. I, I believe is、uh, one of your core interests.、Um, the brain chemicals. How are the brain? What's the agency driving the brain producing a specific compound of these chemicals? So, so yeah, the, the agency basically. Where does that come from? All right. So there's again, there's a fair bit in in that question. There's a lot going on. But the, I think one thing maybe to take a step back from the chemicals because. Every single neuron is communicating through chemical messages to the next neuron. So, so whether, I mean, a really simplistic way of looking at it would be to say that a lot of the information processing or the computing stuff is driven by the big, the big glutamatergic neurons. So they're the ones that fire. They they're the ones that code most of the information all over the cortex.、Um, and then there's inhibitory ones that are GABA, but it's all chemicals. And then it's the big sort of serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline, these types of things that I guess flood the brain in different instances and and change. They, they sort of coordinate, but also I guess change the the broad state of functioning of the brain. So if you're in a highly anxious state, it impacts all the floods the brain with noradrenaline. You the way you process your world and experience your world will be different. But The, the, it isn't the case that's that you consciously say now I want to release serotonin or something like that. So just to separate agency is particularly linked into certain chemicals. I think is less、yeah. relevant. But I, it is. I, I agree with that sort of intuition that it's that sense of self and that sense of agency that is the thing that feels most fundamental to us.、Um, But again, if you like, I can't imagine being conscious and having no affect, like no emotion at all. But the, there are sort of clinical states and such things where sense of agency is altered,、um, either to feel like the world. You know, often in psychosis, people either feel like they their agency is extending into the, you know, they can control other things out there in the world that. Maybe they're not controlling, or vice versa. They feel like they're not controlling. They feel disconnected to the their body and such things. So it's tricky. But again, on the flip, if you start thinking about the artificial systems, computers and robots and all the rest of it,、um, 
I have had a lot of interesting conversations with some of the computer scientists here and they're now in robots and such things that they're, they're trying to, well, not trying to, they're actually sort of embedding mind-wandering types of algorithms into their systems. So if the system, let's say you've got, I mean, a robot vacuum cleaner is not a good, not a good um Example, because it's got a really clear function. But let's say you had some sort of bot thing that was that was. Uh, they actually, in fact, they, they they talk about often they train their systems in different um, uh, ground materials, so carpet and then sand and all this sort of thing. Now, if the system's got a job to do, like go retrieve the thing and come back, and then it's sitting idle, the idea being well, it should be prompted internally to either start simulating virtual experiences and thinking, okay, if I did this or that, can I, based on, you know, if there was a, if it kind of could combine bits of knowledge that it had previously just in the same way that we do, you might be able to imagine a hypothetical future based on previous knowledge to simulate an actual sort of context that you haven't experienced before. And there's no reason that an artificial system, a computer, a robot couldn't be recording an experience, not is the wrong word, but recording um, things that it's learned about tactile and motor and outputs. You know, robot does some maneuver and maybe maybe it pushes down its legs and it jumps up, you know, whatever it discovers that, hey, I did that and I've I've jumped up and then I came crashing down. Um, so, So there's those sorts of things. And or to also be motivated, the robot to be motivated to play. So if it comes into a novel environment, it should switch into an information-seeking state. So on the one hand, you're like, that does seem really inherently like that's core to the, the thing, the magic ingredient that makes us conscious. But as we start getting more and more complicated, just capacity in these artificial systems there's absolutely no reason you can't write an algorithm to say, well, if you're doing, if it's if it's boring, if basically if you've done a lot of repetition and you're not experiencing new things, go for something else. Just like add some noise, add some randomness, do a different thing, get up and turn left instead of right, um, and see what happens, type of thing. I can see that. Like you give, uh, say, the Roomba, the, the vacuum yeah. cleaner, you give it a list of jobs yeah. and tell it to say every. Every five to ten minutes, yeah. you look through your list and, well, even just randomly select a, yeah. a goal and start to go for it. Mm-hmm. And that that starts to, to leap from just a very rigid yeah. old version to a yeah. seemingly intelligent version. Exactly. They want systems that can adapt and that's what humans are really good at doing is, is being presented with novel situations and we... We know a lot and we adapt and we have a bit of a play and there's this bright purple squishy thing there. Well, I'll poke it gently first and see what happens. <laughs> if it says ow, I'll do something else. If it explodes, I don't do that again, you know. Um, and yeah, there's no reason other systems can't do that. So then it gets back to that initial question of that sort of zombie, like what what's the magic ingredient? And we've got to start removing ingredients and saying, well, if we add that ingredient do we think that that thing has become conscious? But but how do we know? It gets very circular. It's it's a big question. It's a but very big question. The more uh, the more 
I, I hear how you how you are answering, how you tackling this. The more I feel, yeah, probably these people are overthinking it. <laughs> They're overthinking it. Coming back to if, if I so if I imagine coming away from robots and coming back to yeah. to people and, and trying mm-hmm. to sort of make that the, the understanding of where the subjective nature mm. of, of of consciousness comes from. So if Daz and I are sitting here and you've got us wired up with mm-hmm. the latest technology that, that we have available to us uh, from a neuroscience perspective to see yeah. what's going on in our brain and you you know you put a, a painting a brilliant red painting it's yeah, strong yeah, it's yeah. vibrant and, and you see what's going on in my brain and, and mm-hmm. you see what's going on in Daz's brain and there's there's an awful lot of activity yeah. like, there's so much going on yeah, you see, yeah. I'm sure you're seeing you know you're yeah, seeing yeah, yeah. so much activity and you touched on this a little bit before, but I just want to bring it to, to the where, like, how is it even possible to mm. get to the point where we're seeing the the bits beyond just the um, the mechanical sort of functioning of, of what's happening with the visual cortex and how mm-hmm. we're seeing, etc. And to, to to get down to that isolation of where the subjective nature of I'm going to come back to mm. feelings because it's just mm-hmm. the bit that resonates with me that makes me feel happy when I see that, that makes Daz feel sad. Mm. And you've got the latest technology going on. You can see it all. But is it, is it too complicated, what, what you're seeing, to even get to that point of being able to find that subjectiveness within that experience? Um, or do you feel like we're getting close to that? And I know you've, you've answered this a little bit yeah, previously, yeah. but I, I want to circle back around to it because I find it really, really fascinating to imagine that. I think we're – one thing I would say – I don't think we've got the answers yet, but I do feel like we know much more than we did 20 years ago. Um, and ruling out more things. It's becoming, there is a focus, there is convergence coming across these different uh, fields. And one thing, for example, um, when you say the whole brain lights up, and a, a big, I guess, development over the last few years has been that a lot of these old studies have been redone recently in in that um it has always been clear you show someone a big painting, you ask them what they see or whatever, there's, the whole brain lights up. And there's been this new uh, shift towards something called a no-report paradigm. And often it's something like automatic eye movements. So normally you would have had to have given someone a task. The, the, a good example, often there's a lot of illusions and things that, that are used in which – I won't go into the, the, the details, in, but there's basically these tricks that, that in some trials that the stimulus will be presented in the same way to a person and in some trials the person will subjectively be conscious of one element, like let's say a tomato and a bunch of other stuff, and in other cases they'll just see the bunch of other stuff and not the tomato is, is maybe one way to think about it or a noisy stimulus. And it's actually suppressed from awareness and and that's because you know we aren't we aren't able to process everything that is on going on around us so you can create these neat little paradigms where the thing being presented to the person is identical but their subjective experience changes okay and so so that has been that that part of it has been used to death for the last 20 30 years and they say right what parts of the brain light up when they see when someone says they're conscious of a thing and they've done that in, in animals that are trained to report as well. Um, and now they're redoing those same experiments, but instead of asking the person to push a button 
once they if they see the tomato or don't see the tomato or, and not push if they don't see the tomato, whatever it is, um, they'll do these. There's a range of different tricks now they can use with um, eye movements or, or later report and all this sort of stuff. And and in the past, if you had to report the thing, all the front half of your brain lights up as well as all the back. So the back does all the vision stuff and and attention and object recognition. But if you wipe out the front part, I mean, if you wipe out the requirement to actually respond, the, the front part of the brain is is no longer seems to be active um, or doesn't need to be – it's not sort of required to be active. And so already they've sort of carved off half the brain. And as I said, you know, 20 years ago we knew that if you could get rid of the cerebellum, which is that sort of chunk at the back, which is not a small chunk of brain, they knew that you could do that without losing consciousness. Um and now it seems that if, I mean, if you get rid of the front part of the brain clinically, if someone has a stroke, you have a heavily impacted individual that can't organise themselves, can't, you know, massive cognitive disability. But the current research would be suggesting that someone might be very functionally impaired, but their conscious experience might be quite rich. They just can't do anything useful with that information. So... Already you've gone from, well, basically 50% of the brain has, in the last few years, has been narrative, so it doesn't seem to be that. Now, the rest of the, the brain that sits in between the front and that the cerebellum, um, if you get rid of those, it's the, it's the big sensory networks that feed in through the middle of the brain and include the affective part and the emotional part. So whereas the front seems to be more about goal-directed behaviour and planning and what I'm going to do tomorrow, I've got to focus on this exam because I've got, you know, I want a job in three years' time, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and the cerebellum is more about fine motor control, which, again, you're not conscious of. So things that, so, so we know what's useful about that sort of stuff is, well, the same basic neurons exist around the brain, so it can't be just about the neuron. So what is it about this bit? So we're learning and we're going, okay, there's something special here and it is highly, highly connected, so maybe it's just the highly connectedness of it. Um, how do you, how do you uh, replicate or manipulate the emotions as an interesting part because a lot of the emotional the parts of the brain that drive emotion are very evolutionarily old and they sit in the base of the brain and... What's interesting in that is they also exist in most of the basic animals. Um, so it would suggest if these are important parts, then they are shared within other animals. But also if you have damage in those areas, like a stroke, people often die, you know, because they're so close to areas that also manage heart rate and things like that arousal, those fight or flight mechanisms will they that flood the whole heart rate, breathing, everything. So often if you if you damage those central parts, the person has those sorts of, you know, death to, to contend with. So it's hard to tease that, tease those things apart. That's a long answer to your no, question. Is that, no, it's well, good, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, seems to me if the front part, without yeah. reporting, mm. the front part is not reported, but the... Conscious experience still rich. Mm. It feels like what what animal, animals would be at least dog yeah. and cat that level of yeah, animal. Yeah, they yeah. Um, they may not have the, the higher functioning that associated with the front mm-hmm. part. They they don't have um, as much of that. Yeah. But the emotional bit and yeah, the yeah. Uh, visual bits 
for them are, are similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To and and to be fair to the dog or whatever, I mean, they still can function and they are extremely intelligent. If you you know, in terms oh, of their yeah. own, you know, a wild dog, for example, is doing a pretty good job of surviving out in the world um, in a way that I couldn't do. So you have to be really careful. Of, yeah, they couldn't do their taxes and probably won't study for exams or think too far ahead. But but they are still. Uh, acting, they're making decisions to act in their world, and most simple animals can communicate as well. So, so the assumption would be they would be using the front part of their brain, but for different types of action and goal-directed behaviour and, and these sorts of things. We've got um, a bunch of questions I want to ask you about altered states of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. But before we get there, yeah. we thought um, we'd give you an opportunity to share with the audience the the lab that you run, the Human oh, Experience yeah. Lab. Um, perhaps just a little bit about the the um, the motivations and the objectives of the lab and mm-hmm. if there's anything particular that you're working on right now that's uh, getting you really excited or that your students are working on. Yeah, so I recently changed the name of the lab to the Human Experience Lab because I found that the students were doing such different sorts of projects. I needed a really broad um, title. It used to be called the Perception of Pharmacology Lab um, and that's because I, I, I personally have an interest in in how the neurotransmitters and other sort of chemicals impact the way we we think and, and our experiences. A main reason for that interest for my, my me personally is that very little is understood about it. So it's it was in my mind it was a, it's a huge gap in our current understanding. Um, but as a um, more senior academic now, I love having these you know PhD students that come in to my my group most of the students um that that are in my lab have have really interesting backgrounds and they often come from multiple disciplines so uh, i have a couple that have was one with a philosophy and neuroscience background another more a psychology and mathematics pure mathematics background um I have one that's a clinician that, that's finishing his medical degree and has finished his, his medical training and is interested in um, psychedelics and other things. So I tend to um, have long conversations with students before they start in in the group and I like them to have really like a core question themselves that, and then I work with them to think about how would you study that. And one student that's just finished has a really, you know, a real strong passion in in meditation and a background in meditation. But he previously, he's just finished now, and he previously had done, a, he was a professional lawyer. He'd done a full law degree, and was really a, a reader, you know. And I mean, had a capacity to just read texts, and he loved the ancient texts of the different meditation traditions. And so, his PhD was was really comparing the expert texts comparing different um, styles of meditation to ask whether the experts that have spent 30 years doing these meditation techniques, whether they're experiencing fundamentally similar things or fundamentally different things. Because they, as, as one example, they talk about contentless experience. And so from a consciousness science question, what, what would it mean to have a contentless experience? And he spent four years reading, you know, sort of a thousand books and comparing these different states. And it's interesting that that these contentless experiences are described as blissful and calm and sort of having a sense of clarity. So all and wakefulness. So all of these things are not nothing. It's not 
it's not a state of unconsciousness. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of complex objects that are not part of that experience, but it wasn't contentless. So, so I, at the start of this year, actually, I looked back across all my students and thought, wow, I've got students all doing really different things. And um, But at the end of it, really, where the umbrella term, as it were, that covers everything that happens in my lab is questions about human experience. Mm-hmm. And in the, yeah. in the future, I asked the students too, they, they, they quite like the, the, the name, but in the future I also am quite interested in, in more the technology side of things and, and understanding the neuroethics around com- complex artificial systems and just thinking about those things and VR and augmented reality and yeah. these types of things. And, and it all fits. I thought I need, I need a title that allows uh, future as well, you know, future technology to fit into uh, the lab. We, we, can't, we can't let you not tell us at least a snippet yeah. of that future that, 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 that you see or, or what's getting you excited in that world that you're researching. Um, you know, if you're sort of crystal balling a little bit yeah, here yeah. and speculating, just briefly, tell us. Well, there's, so there's two things that I'm interested in. One from more like, you know, I guess my core research training was in vision science and um, – you know, I spent three years in the Harvard Vision Lab and everyone's studying vision and, and how we learn and experience the world because that's such a rich experience for us, you know, for humans, is their visual world. So one question I have is just how is is uh, an increased sort of adoption of immersive experiences and augmented reality going to impact the way we experience the world? You know, we learn from our experiences. So if we're actually spending a lot of time in all these kind of virtual virtual environments, how how will we engage with those environments? Things like sense of agency, all these things. If you if you you can artificially alter the your, your agency in terms of your interactions with your immediate environment, your brain has evolved in an evolutionarily sort of you know it's, we've evolved in a time when we didn't have VR, so it's not keyed up to recognise you know. The, the virtual versus the real. Already we're seeing that type of thing with, with the fake newsy, but it, I just think when you end up with a 3D immersive environment, um, that could be really interesting. Things like risk-taking, so there's a lot increased training in virtual environments, and is that going to uh, change our risk, the, the way we learn, fundamentally learn um, different things, and... Yeah, that, that type of thing, or will it allow us to be more connected? So, so that's one question in terms of VR, and part of it's just a technical thing. You know, you see the ads that VR can do this and this and this, but can it really? You know, does it? How how close are we getting? So, I find that that sort of interesting. The other is more the the actually interacting with robot systems. You know, we more and more there's going to be this. Uh, hybrid landscapes where we are having to communicate with artificial systems and these things like emotions we it's already clear to people working in the technology space that for example if it's if if a robot is assisting um like a pilot for example if you've got an artificial um sort of smart smart cockpit as it were well it makes a difference if the human is in a highly anxious state Versus they're in a calm state because at what po- you know the the decision to override the human should be impacted by the state of the human. Yeah. So this 
we're at that point now. We're at that point now of saying, okay, it's not just that humans do well at X thing, you know, but rather that, well, humans' capacities change across time. They change with expertise. If you've got even like one really simple example, first to do with consciousness, but if we start having uh, assisted assistance in a home context, smart homes or robots at home, if you think like a retired person, it would actually be really, really bad for someone in early retirement if they had a smart house that just started ordering their food and preparing meals for them and if the person sort of wanted a beer from the fridge that the, the robot got them a beer and every time they said thanks, the, you know, if the, if the artificial systems are just learning from the people of what the person wants, that's actually not best for the person, you know, and it's important that you are driven to go out and go to the shop and do these things. Whereas a 95-year-old person, that might not be true. So how do we have these systems that can learn from their person but know at what point not to satisfy the person's desires and to change that across time and across day. Maybe a person got sick that day. So it becomes so much more nuanced and at the moment that's what humans are really good at mm-hmm. is understanding that and that's the next challenge for the, the robot space and then how do we start interacting with mm-hmm. with artificial systems that are responsive to our moods and and then and the ethics of well, who should decide if you at what point should the the robot do what you've asked versus not yeah, do what you've asked? Yeah. You know, yeah. does government decide that, um, or does the human at the start say, "Don't give me more than five beers yeah. a night"? You know what? And then that when, makes it very dangerous it's, if it's up to yeah. who owns the right to yeah. to produce the robots. Yeah. That, that's making. So who? So this is what I find is interesting. Who who's going to solve that problem? You yeah. know, is it government? Do you want do you want the prime minister of the day to decide how yeah. what oh, your robots? Not. <laughs> exactly. Do you want the robot? So this is it. I just think that it's really. I think that it's interesting in terms of just the technology advance. How do the you know? It's interesting questions. How do you get a system to read out mood and to do that? We have to better understand mood and all these sorts of things. But then also the ethics that come with that, I just find super interesting. So that's a podcast in itself yeah. right there. I might have to get you back on. That was fascinating. I love the pilot example as well. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not just when, it's what state and how yeah. do you tell that state. You know, yeah. calm, anxious. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, with uh, you facilitating PhD students to, to, to work on a vastly different set of things, mm-hmm. um, that all falls under the human experience, there are, uh, well, I'm going to circle a little bit back to, to uh, again, with regard to consciousness and with regard to uh, what brain chemicals um, in relation with the, the big question, the consciousness. Um, for aspiring academics who want to go down this path, um, because in, in, the, in the talk given by Susan Greenfield, she did mention a, a particular term, a CLM, career limiting move, with regard to people who want to get into consciousness research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, it's hard to get grants. It's, you know, uh, a lot of people considering it's an unanswerable question, as we have covered. Mm. So, um, for people, but the consciousness is such a, a, a topic that, that allows people, like, like myself, I, I mm. geek out. 
mm. with regard to consciousness, I, it just get me excited, mm. like when I was a kid, with regard to dinosaurs. Yeah. It's that level. Yeah, yeah. Um, so people obviously interest in consciousness. Yeah. Um, is this still a career-limiting move? And also the same question for mm. the future outlook of brain chemical research. Mm. So it's probably worth, in terms of the brain chemical research, it is worth distinguishing between sort of psychedelics and all other brain, you know, dopamine yeah. research has been going on forever. Um, but to, to go back to your first, the, the first question, consciousness, uh, and my, my answer is probably the same for psychedelics as well. Um, it's not like it used to be. It, I remember when I was in undergrad, uh, I spoke to one of the lecturers at the time and I said, I want to study consciousness. And he said, I used to want to study dolphins, but you, you got to get got realistic or something like that. you got to get realistic. And I always tell that story. So, so that uh, professor's no longer at the university, but he's, he's moved on to, uh, into Adelaide, and I see him from time to time, and we always joke because I now – I'd left and I now have a career in consciousness research – but I did my PhD in a lab where half the people were doing like aquatic animal dolphin research and all this stuff. So it, it, both things were untrue. You know, if you really want to study dolphins, you, you can. Um, but the, to get back to the, the previous point, my, what my advice would be to, to any person, either if it's consciousness or even like meditation or psychedelics or something that's a bit more fringe, is, is to say that that's not – I don't think that – that either of those three things is a topic in itself. If you go back to that idea of an umbrella term, okay, so I think that people are – for what purpose do you want to study consciousness? Okay, so under that same umbrella term, you know, there are a lot of people looking at the clinical implications of lower, you know, higher or lower consciousness or unconsciousness or pain yeah. perception or anesthesia or something like that. Um, there is a massive, you know, epilepsy is a, is a really important question, loss of consciousness. So, so there's, there's that side of it. There is, it's, there's not a lot of jobs in philosophy, but there are a kind of philosophical questions. Um, or if it's really around how does the brain do it, then it, it, it feeds you down towards more neuroscience uh, sort of thing. And so really what you need to do is think, well, what types of skills, you know, do I want to be a brain imaging person? okay, that studies consciousness? Do I want to be a clinician that's interested in altered states of consciousness? Am I interested in questions of sense of agency and risk and how does that impact behaviour? You know, and and then get into those sorts of, of groups because... Find your... Find applicable areas. Yeah, and also people will often say to themselves, like they'll think, well, I want to study consciousness. But if I ask one person, you know, I've got just in my lab as an example you know one likes reading books the other is is a pure mathematician and so his project is is really he says he wants to study consciousness but actually what he wants to do is understand the the mathematical sort of relationships that exist within the brain and so he's looking at um simulated brain data and it's all maths really the other person was all just what do people say and i'm going to look at lots of books and so often a student will say, oh, well, I want to do this. But actually what they mean is I saw some really interesting papers or talks where there was brain imaging data that said this bit of the brain does that and that's what I want to do. So then they think, well, that because then the person that gives that talk often says, well, this is consciousness. Mm-hmm. And they don't realise actually people are doing very different types of things. Um, and so... 
So moving and, and I give the same, I think it's even more extreme in something like psychedelics, particularly I mean, meditation people do. There's a lot of people just do meditation for their own person, lots of different reasons. And there's a lot that just, you know, you don't have to justify sort of being a Buddhist and doing meditation. But with the psychedelics, I think it's slightly different because people do come to my office and say, I want a career in psychedelics. It's like, I want to say that. Yeah. But then what's the, you know, what's the end purpose? Is it that I've had students that's like, well, I just think it should be more available. It's like, well, then mm. just go write a blog along with the million other people writing blogs to say we should be doing this. Mm. Do you want, what are you interested in the laws around the regulation? Are you interested in the politics and the regulation, this sort of thing? Are you interested in, is it that you want to cure depression? Is it you think actually your interest is that you feel like these drugs are, going to be beneficial for people with depression mm-hmm. and that's your interest because a lot of people come to me and like they don't care what it's going to be used for they're just sure it's great and I don't I, you know people like that well that's not a scientific approach to understanding these things if your core interest is people's mental health then I, my personal view is psychedelics will probably be useful for some people and unhelpful and genuinely risky for other people with mental health conditions and so if your objective is improving the plight of people with depression, then start learning about what's current best practice for depression mm-hmm. and, and everything that is associated with depression or other clinical symptoms and syndromes and do you want to be a therapist or actually interacting with patients or do you want to just be more interested in the, in the biology mm-hmm. and the pharmacology, you know. Um, and that really shifts people because yeah. you need to also – like a few people have said to me, well, I just think it should be more available. It's like, well, what do you do if it becomes more available? You can take a lot of yourself. Well, you can take it. You go to Byron Bay, you can no, take yeah. it yourself. That's what they... But your career is ended. Yeah. You know, yeah. if all of a sudden they change the laws and it becomes available, then do you... So then there's no role for you anymore. That's, yeah, it's a very temporary fight. Yeah. So so I think that that's it. And if, if, you, if there's no... If it's just personal... So... On the flip side, like my interest in psychedelics is not to cure depression. If it helps people with depression, great. If it's risky for certain people with different things, we should know that and make sure it's safe. Um, But for me, my interest is that I'm interested in how the brain generates conscious experience. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot is known about these drugs. And the thing that I find fascinating is that the, the, the psychedelics effects arise when you have drugs that selectively stimulate the serotonin 2A receptor. And there are a lot of there's 20 odd serotonin receptors, lots of dopamine, noradrenaline, all these different other systems. If you stimulate those receptors, you don't get psychedelic effects. So it's not a random thing. You know, unlike I find meditation extremely interesting as well, but from the, the sort of biological scientific perspective, we don't really know what's happening in a person that's been doing this for 30 years. Well, they do different things, but you can't, like, you just have to sort of ask them, well, what, did you, what have you just been doing? Whereas with the psychedelics, you can have a healthy person, give them the drug, we know how long it goes in the system, you can do the brain imaging, but we know what it's doing. We know where the neurons sit that have those receptors. We know what happens when you activate those receptors because you can get some neurons in a dish and do all this stuff. So we actually have a lot of a handle on what is happening at the neural level and now the question is, well, why doing that thing in a brain? Why does it have some uh, clinical potential clinical benefits? That's one question. My question is, why does it completely alter your 
subjective experience in a way that other, other compounds do not at all. I so, can I ask you that question uh, yeah. briefly? Just what exactly is, say, for example, psilocybin? What exactly does it do that changes your mood? Quite often, people report that the mood changes for the better, and uh, it stops them their craving for 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 their addiction to drink or take drugs.、Yeah. Um, what exactly did it do? So it's a, it's remains a very big question, and I think one really important question in that is is it is it just something about the bio, biological sort of stimulation of these brain regions, or is it? The field is split, and I think I think the vast majority of clinicians working in that space, that the ones that are sure that psychedelics are going to solve all everyone's problems,、um, there seems to be this emphasis that well, it's the experience you have in that state. So it so it is really about this、um, that you're having this very altered state, and you learn from that state. Okay, that's one one sense. I'm not sure that's true. It, it depends. It's an open question. Like we really don't know what aspect of it is causing the effect. The other thing to say is it's not whatever it is. Is it? it it's not just like a quick change of mood. It is to the extent that it, people report having effects. It is much more about the sort of perspective, the perception. So the idea being, it's it might be useful in things like rumination and. Those aspects of depression, or, or OCD and obsessive compulsive thoughts, or addiction, these sorts of things. That I mean, I, you sometimes hear in very scientific literature terms like it shakes up the snow globe, and I find that very irritating because that's not very scientific.、Mm. Um, so the idea that well, okay, that intuitively makes sense, some sense for、yeah. resetting the, that the brain doesn't answer anything. Doesn't answer anything. The snow globe. Like, doesn't answer anything. Tell me. Yeah, yeah,、Nothing. yeah, yeah. So, exactly. So. I, to, you read in the the high level scientific literature very sort of strong opinions about well, the, here we have evidence that this is doing this and this and it's shaking the snow globe or resetting you know in pathological brain networks it's really not clear and if it's resetting the pathological brain networks is it also resetting the non pathological brain networks you know like there's There is a real sense in the current literature that it just—it's only good. And if there's a negative, if you're having a negative experience, it'll wipe them out. But if you're having a positive thing, it'll enhance those. I mean, the drugs don't work like that, you know. That it's all over the brain. And I think it's really important that we understand what it's doing. But even if not, we don't have a great understanding really of how anesthetics, like anesthesia, works. But for a very long time, in mean, 20 years ago. The doctors knew. Well, you give this much, it will cause you to be unconscious. You give that much, it makes your heart stop. And so we don't do that. We do this, and they just it works. So that's also okay if we have a really good handle on. Well, these doses work for these people, and this is what's safe. Then that's fine. A lot of medicine works like that,、um, but we don't have that either. You know, at the moment, most of the trials exclude just huge numbers of people. Um, and the trials require people to go off current medication and these sorts of things. We don't know what the implication of taking people off if they have any sort of well, I have depression and a bit of anxiety. Well, they, well, we only want people with pure depression. This sort of stuff. So it's、um, it's not at all clear how these treatments will translate into just an average clinic 
sort of mm-hmm. in Australia. It's interesting here because purely from an anecdotal sort of pop psychology perspective, again, dinner table conversations, friends, etc. there is this rhetoric out there that, you know, medicinal psychedelics are going to be the cure for many of these psychiatric you know, mm. conditions, PTSD, etc. But from what we're hearing from you, actually, you know, if you get into this, yeah, if you get into the science of it, there's plenty of questions still to be answered. There's still, and there's not that many people, I think it's a a problem that that most of the, a lot of the people doing the science are already convinced it's going to be useful. So they're, they're not going out of their way to raise concerns. In the last 12 months, there's been more written about okay, we need to be more concerned about risk. Or just, just that there are voices now and, and in, the, in the journals there are, there are articles being written. Not that it's, these are bad, but just these are questions that need to be, to be addressed. There, there is, I read a thing, because I remember your section for mm-hmm. biological psych uh, about the uh, uh, serotonin reuptake. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an article in, in Lancet, uh, I, I read about SSRI, uh, that it's common for any new drug that initially people think is the miracle mm. after massive mm. uh, adoption more people have tried it mm. the, the many rarer side effects start to reveal itself mm. and people think oh no so, so now psychedelic is probably in the first phase mm. and people think okay this is the miracle yeah. because it's now vastly implemented we mm. don't know we haven't seen what yeah. we need to see yet. Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. And and the people enrolling into these trials are often moving states to enroll. You know, they're so I desperate. Know you're going to Swiss well, to yeah. Study but but that's it becomes more of a problem when you're. Well, maybe it's also a, an, an issue when you've got the therapists that are also just desperate to be part of this. They're all sure it's going to work. You've got the, all the participants absolutely convinced it's going to be useful. When it starts becoming, you know, the 65-year-old sort of like ex-librarian from the western suburbs or whatever that just goes to a doctor because they have depression and they're given this tablet without really understanding what it is or could have radically different effects to people that are not, you know, fully read up on it or don't have this massive expectation it's going to be helpful. Um, so who knows? We just have no clue. It has not been studied. It hasn't been studied. There are no trials that are recruiting people um, currently that are that are just not aware that they're, that they're applying for a psychedelic study. There's some groups now that are starting to recruit just saying novel compound and so at least trying to get people. So all these things are solvable problems, but mm-hmm. people have been not not uh, doing the research in that way. It seems like there's a lot of momentum behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's good. Also, the, the, the vast amount of unanswered bits yeah. Yeah. for the next, yeah. next yeah. batch. That's yeah. right. People come in and there are plenty to, to focus on. Yeah. Um, one last question on old yeah. states of consciousness, and we are coming up on time. Um, but I, I have to ask this, just personally being being really interested in this. I saw that your your lab had had some um, involvement in a project around uh, HPPD, which oh, is yeah, hallucinogen yeah. persisting perception disorder. And for, yeah. the, for the audience listening, um, it's uh, ultimately about this is a non psychotic disorder where a person experiences lasting um, effects mm. of the hallucinogen that, that they've had of the experience. Yeah. And I found that really interesting. 
just personally, that's mm. always something that I've had a bit of a fear on around mm. um, around psychedelics, and, and from conversations again, anecdotally, I know mm. others um, have as well. So perhaps just a, a little bit on that. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how deep you went into to this topic, um, yeah. but but anything you can share around this uh, would, would be really interesting. Yeah. So we've got a we've got a trial. Well not, so. Um, we're in the middle of, of this project and it's actually being funded by a group from the US um, that reached out to us to, um, because I'd done some work looking at perceptual effects of psychedelics in the acute state, you know, when you take a drug, um, they reached out to, to see if we could do some some research more trying to understand the nature of these effects that people report. And um, the the... I think, so, you know, there, there is in this literature the idea of these, like, flashbacks and, you know, you, all of a sudden you're in the middle of this crazy trip, and that seems to be very un, unusual. That's not really what what the HPPD experience is. And what it is much more like is there's a phenomenon called visual snow that is also, which is in healthy people, um, that apparently up until recently was also not taken very seriously. And... Maybe one, and people seem to be more familiar with the idea of tinnitus in the ears, where you get this ringing in the ears. And again, it's hard to to test or hard to to treat, but the idea that people have this experience is understood in the auditory domain, and it's now becoming increasingly clear that some people experience that in the in the visual sense. And what that means is they talk about it as having almost like this like visual static over the front of it, the whole visual field the whole time, or trails you know things are too bright it sounds a little bit like not my grayness but something like that is too intense and and unpleasant people have trouble um driving at night because the, the trails are a problem um but they're not in a confused state it's just this a bit like having the people with tinnitus in their ears have find it extremely unpleasant and i don't i'm not exactly sure of the actual incidents and, you know, the number of people experiencing this because the data is not really very good at the moment. So we've um, uh, been funded to create this, like, test battery and sort of large questionnaire thing that we're just about to launch, actually, to better understand, well, how often, you know, how many people experience this and and ideally, like, trying to better understand, well, what is the difference between people who have taken psychedelics and not experienced these things versus the people that have taken psychedelics and experienced these things? Because some people reported after a few doses or one dose even and others will take drugs, you know, 50 times and have no effects. But it is, it, it's still an open question, how much does this overlap with the visual snow phenomenon in the healthy um, brain? Because... The, in, in the healthy population because to be um, diagnosed with that, you have to say that you have not taken psychedelics. So if, wow. you've, if you've taken psychedelics and have that, you, you're diagnosed as HPPD if you have it and you're not. So it's not it, – there is a chance that it's kind of the same condition, you know, and that maybe a stress event or there, – there is certainly relationship with people that experience both HPPD and uh, the visual snow without psychedelics – increase sort of reports of migraine and anxiety and stress and these sorts of things. So it could just – it could be something like that. Um, but we're, the research we're doing now is, is really to, to better understand what it is, but it's not a treatment as such. But Okay, so more to come in that space. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. interesting to keep an eye out. Yeah. Um, 
we're, we're pretty much wrapping things up. We're, we're going to finish with, with the, the final question for um, those listening who um, look at you as a, as a professor, Olivia, and think one day I want to be that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any advice for, for these people going through their journey, um, you know, perhaps they're at the undergrad stage right now or, or certainly early in their journey, um, perhaps about finding a topic of, of interest uh, is often one that we hear from people. I don't know what I want to get into. I'm interested in so many different things. Where should yeah. I focus or anything else for that matter um, that you think is worth sharing um, from, from your journey to being a professor at Uni Melbourne? Cool. Yeah, sure. So I, it's, it's, it's interesting and different people have really different parts. I... Um, was always really interested in science and such things. In high school, I wasn't just thinking I want to study consciousness and, and this is what I want to do, but rather it was more that I wasn't other things that I wanted to do. So I, I just um, really kept following my nose, as it were, and I studied subjects that I really found interesting at, at university. So neuroscience, the, my big things were neuroscience, philosophy and psychology, and I did do psychology as an undergrad, but it wasn't – it was probably the thing I was least uh, emphasising, I'll say, and I wasn't particularly fine. You know, I, I would love all the world to be, you know, mentally well and all the rest of it, but but a clinician sort of background was not something that, that interests me. So I landed, I think, where I landed largely from ruling other things out. Um, and I – but I loved the anthropology and, and understanding different people's perspectives and this idea of different, you know, what's the individual ex- experience. And But I also, you know, I work a lot now with philosophers, but really even, even in, as a high school student, I was interested in how the brain was doing this. You know, I wanted to know how the brain was creating me, you know, my experience. Um, and... I remember even studying one time thinking, I've got to study, I've got to do this thing, I've got to pay attention to this thing. And I was off drifting, you know, thinking about the holiday I was going to have. It. And I'm like, how? I started having this argument in myself. I was like, how can I? I want to study. I'm saying it out loud, you know, I'm saying it in my mind. I've got to do this thing and that's what I want to do. And yet my brain is like off doing this other stuff. It's like, what the hell's going on here? Um, and those sorts of questions are just always interested me. And so I continued to follow in. And, and I ended up much more on the neuroscience path. And I guess the one thing that was sort of slightly, I guess, strategic or, or not, but but there were I have also been quite conscious of taking opportunities and I don't just mean like work hard, you know, people often say make the most of your opportunities, but rather thinking a little bit strategically about, well, well what do I, I, I want to do? And in, I, mean, I say that one thing that was highly unstrategic in terms of my move to, to Switzerland, you mentioned I, I did after doing my undergraduate um, degree, Actually, I, I looked here around Melbourne University at the time, people studying conscious, you know, there was no one doing consciousness work and all the projects were looking at this enzyme in this disorder and it didn't appeal. So I so I read some book. I actually moved to Queensland because there was a professor doing things that did appeal. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll go do that. And he was doing all these sort of visual visual illusions and psychosis and, and these sorts of things. And then there was an opportunity to go to Switzerland because one of our – uh, participants in this in this study that had nothing to do with psychedelics had this very unusual result, and he reported taking psychedelics before the day we tested him. Now, 
it was presented to me that like I it was clear to me that that I could go and follow up on this study and but that would have to happen in Switzerland. And at that time, I was like, well, I would love to go to Switzerland. That would be a fun thing. So I put a huge amount of effort into working out how could I get a study up and going in Switzerland while I was enrolled in Queensland. So there was a lot of just motivation there. But once I got working in that field, I realized nobody is doing this stuff, you know. So I had come from a really just a neuroscience background and it was like this bit of the brain does this. This is what the neuron does when it fires. And I could just see that that in terms of building a career, there is so much not known, mm-hmm. you know. And so I, I at that time I remember talking to a few people and thinking, look, I find this interesting, but I find a lot of things interesting. And so now I, I, I really have that lens. You know, I find a lot of things interesting, but some things – you can just see, well, an answer to that question is going to have a massive impact mm-hmm. into this field. And when my, when students come to me, it's it's the same sort of thing. It's like, well, I find this interesting. It's like, well, if you answer that question, who's going to care? How is this going to impact other people? And to get funding and to get jobs and to get published, if you can answer an interesting question that, that the answer impacts more people, then you're going to have a it's just an easier way to get have a career and you know if you do a consciousness question that impacts someone's like detection of coma or anesthesia you're more likely to get a grant you know so to think about all right is this an interesting question that's going to die with you and you know so those sorts of things so so that's another reason why now I just the things around technology it's like well this is a world we're going into and people aren't thinking about that so I, I would do those two things. It's like, what are you interested in? And are 20 million other people doing that? And if the question is, I want to, my, the thing that interests me most is making psychedelics more available to the population. It's like, well, get in line because there are 10,000 other people that are either doing that professionally or they're writing blogs. And that's just who, so just write another blog and someone might hear you. Um, but they probably won't and no one's going to pay you. So I, I think there has to be that balance between okay, what interests me and what will people, people care about. That's a great piece of wisdom. There we go. And yeah. it's a nice way to wrap this up. Thank you so much for the conversation. Um, we've loved it. I know you've loved it. <laughs> hope you have too. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Um, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time on the Site Podcast. See you later.